looking today at Babylon the Great. We've been introduced to her before, but only briefly. In chapter 14, verse 8, an angel had announced Babylon's certain downfall. Uh, Then in chapter 16, verse 19, we heard about Babylon's judgment. But it's not until chapter 17 that we really get to know Babylon and see what she represents. John will often do this in Revelation where he kind of gives you a sneak preview of something, uh, but but not until later does he develop the story more, more fully. And chapter 17 does this for, for Babylon. And, and once we see Babylon for who she is, uh, we understand more fully why God judges her. In the process, though, we also learn what to watch out for when Babylon seeks to impress you. And you might be saying, wait, Babylon impressed me? Didn't God already deal with Babylon? Wasn't Babylon that that ancient empire of Nebuchadnezzar, the the one full of idolatry? Didn't it fall to Persia in 539 B.C.? Are are you saying Babylon still exists? And the answer is yes. Babylon the Great, with all of its pride and idolatry and seduction, it's still around. It's still seeking to impress you and draw you away from the Lord. And if you can't discern her, if you can't see the ways that she's trying to lure you away from Jesus and impress you, then you're in danger. You're in great danger. So let's see what she's like. Do we have more discernment? Read with me, starting in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. 
This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, they will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and, having, uh, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Prophets sometimes received visions that remained cloudy, clouded in mystery. On some occasions, though, an angel would interpret the vision for the prophet. And that happens here to John. In verses 1 to 6, the Spirit gives John a vision of Babylon. And then in verses 7 to 18, uh, that he, the, the angel explains what the vision means in terms of her judgment. So that's the order we're going to take things ourselves today. So to begin, let's discuss the vision in verses 1 to 6. Essentially, John sees Babylon and the beast in partnership against Christ. He sees Babylon and the beast in partnership against Christ. Initially, he's, seen, he's shown a woman, but as things develop, we, we learn that this woman personifies a city, right? Uh, we see that uh, great city in verse 18. Uh, also, we get the name of that city specifically in verse 5. She represents Babylon. Now, in the Old Testament, Babylon eventually became a code word for any proud, idolatrous kingdom who oppressed God's people. That's what we find here. Uh, for starters, Babylon is a great prostitute in verse 1. Now, prostitute uh, is is someone who engages in sexual activity for payment. She runs around and, and, and lures others into these unfaithful alliances with her. In verse 2, we're told that she does this with, with all the kings of the earth. They commit sexual immorality with her. Now, she's not the first city in the Bible to be described this way. Uh, the prophet Nahum uh, once pronounced woes on Nineveh for their countless whorings. Uh, Isaiah 23 likens Tyre to a prostitute. Uh, even Zion gets called a whore in Isaiah 1, verse 21. 
But when you go back and you read these, these different Old Testament contexts, uh, something important comes to light. The whoring isn't limited to, to actual sexual uh, activity. All right? It also includes uh, things like pride. It includes things like uh, idolatry, the worship of false gods. It includes uh, murder, uh, false political alliances that, that one nation would, would form with another, especially Israel. Um, and it would include injustice to the poor. You're, you're placing your own confidence in your riches at times uh, or trusting in false gods. So you, you get this smattering of, of, of things that's going on, and yet in every case, the Lord is taking those and saying, you're like a whore when you run around with these other things. In other words, comparing a city to a prostitute was a more expansive symbol for unfaithfulness to God of all sorts. That's why her cup is full of abomination. Okay, if you go back and look in the Old Testament at this word abominations, it's associated with idolatry and child sacrifice and men wanting to, be to, to pretend they're women and women wanting to pretend they're men. It's used for the guy who uses a false balance at work to try to cheat someone out so he can keep more for himself. It's used for lying to, to skate by. And what we're seeing here is that Babylon seduces kings and nations with her services and in the end leaves them drunk with unfaithfulness of all sorts. She's even brazen about it. She wears it on her forehead in verse 5. She refuses to be ashamed about it. Jeremiah 3.3 3 uses this image of Israel being a, a prostitute. She wears, wears her prostitution on her forehead. She's not even ashamed about it. And that's what we see here with Babylon. And as a mother of prostitutes, she's even working to produce others just like her. She wants to produce other, other cities that will normalize her abomination. Notice, too, her dominion over people. Verse 2 describes her as seated on, on many waters, and that's a little confusing at first, but we get some help later in verse 15 when the angel interprets it for us, right? And he, and he says there, uh, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Verse 18 then gives us a little more. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, we then get further assistance from Jeremiah 51, verse 13, and there we see Babylon beside many waters, and it recalls how, how vast Babylon's control was. It controlled many waters, and by doing so, it also uh, controlled the exchange of wealth among peoples. It became this economic powerhouse on which all other nations depended. You see how that would work together with her harlotry? She takes these, this wealth and, and these economic incentives and she says, oh, come on in. I've prepared a bed for you. Drink from my cup and you can, you can buy and sell all you want here. 
which leads to another point about Babylon, which is her luxurious living. It's, it's quite impressive. Look how she's dressed in verse 4. Arrayed in purple and, and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup. Now, if you turn over one page, look at, look at chapter 18, verse 12, where he's, uh, it's in the middle of laments, right, over Babylon, but Look at eight, eight, chapter 18, verse, verse 12. Uh, well, let's start in verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. So this is after her judgment. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold. There's gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth of all kinds, right? Uh, then look at chapter 18, verse 16. They're again weeping and they say, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, her, this, all this wealth has been, and been laid waste. And so, so these, what we're seeing here is, is that these, these, uh, what she's dressed in is kind of representative of Babylon's extravagant wealth. Uh, and if you look at chapter 18, verse 3, uh, we see more of what's going on. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So on the inside, we've, we're seeing that this, this woman is full of abominations, but on the outside, she looks like royalty. She looks admirable. She looks wealthy and strong. She looks like she's number one in the world. And that's what entices people to form these alliances with her. One of her biggest alliances is with the beast. Look at verse 3. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've seen him before, haven't we? In chapter 13, verse 1, he's the beast that was rising up out of the sea, and he's the one that manifests Satan's rule on the earth. We had to go back to Daniel 7 to learn about this beast. He, he symbolizes many kingdoms that rise and fall over time that oppose God and persecute God's people. Remember, too, that the beast is the one that impresses the world with his military power and his political influence, and the world is so impressed by his ability to conquer all the others that they worship the beast. Who, who is like the beast, right? Who can stand against him? And what we're seeing here is that Babylon rides his shoulders, leans on his ability to conquer, which explains why Babylon also persecutes the church. That's what the, that's what the beast is about. He persecutes the church. We saw that in chapter 13. Now in verse 6, we're seeing the same thing. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so th these, would be, these would be the people who are speaking out and confronting her abominations and confronting her idolatry. And when you do that, you suffer. You don't get to buy and sell in her economy. If you don't affirm her abominations, but choose to follow Jesus instead, then you die. She spills your blood. 
You see, at first, her scarlet colors, they look like royalty. And they look like riches. But on closer inspection, she's covered in the blood of the innocent. That's what's going on. So this is Babylon the Great. Now, some have wondered who she represents historically. Uh, And first century Rome is a pretty good option. Rome was wealthy. Rome controlled the seas. Rome idolized its military. Rome persecuted Christians. So John may very well be, you know, nudging his, his readers to wake up, look around at the Roman culture. But I don't think Revelation means for us to stop there. In chapter 16, verse 19, Babylon included the cities of the nations. And in our passage, what's she doing? She's with all the kings of the earth. Also, in the bigger scope of, of Revelation, he is, he, 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 Babylon is in contrast to the New Jerusalem. You either belong to one or the other. There's only two cities. That would be four. There's only two cities, right? You belong to one or the other. So it's better to say that Rome was but one manifestation of Babylon. Every society, every government that opposes Jesus and his people is part of Babylon. So she is vast and she is impressive. And that's that's why John marvels greatly in verse 6. Now, the same word appeared in chapter 13, verse 3, to describe people marveling at the beast to the point of worship. And perhaps John, after seeing Babylon, is starting to lean that way. But it could also mean that John feels overwhelmed in the sense of like, how, how could anyone stand before this Babylon? Either way... The following words are meant to, as a correction, they're meant in a sense of to to help John see and expose why worshiping Babylon isn't the answer, nor is it right to lose hope before Babylon. Before Jesus, Babylon has no lasting power or future. And that brings us to the angel's interpretation in verses 7 to 18. In verse 5, John named a mystery. Babylon the Great, but in verses 7 to 18, he explains the mystery of her judgment. The, the point, you see, the point of Revelation isn't to keep things hidden from you, but it's to, it's to reveal. It's called the Revelation, right? It's to reveal what's hidden, and, and what's revealed gives you wisdom, discernment. And he starts with the beast in verses 7 to 14. The beast rule is impressive but futile before the lordship of Christ. The beast rule is impressive, but futile before the lordship of Christ. Yes, the beast rule is impressive. In verse 8, he's characterized with a past and, and a future rise. He was and is not and is about to rise. Then in verses 9 to 11, he stands behind the, the rise of these seven kings or kingdoms. In verse 9, he says, the seven heads are are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, 
One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, as you can imagine, there are numerous views about these kings and their identities, and I'll try to give you three that are more sane. But many, many view these kings as seven Roman empires. You might even call that the, the majority uh, position, that they are, they are seven Roman emperors. And that's possible, especially with the reference to the, the seven hills or seven mountains here, uh, which is what Rome was known for. A big problem, though, is knowing which emperors to count. <clears throat> do, do we start with Caesar? Do we start with Augustus? Do we start with Caligula? And there's no widespread agreement on that. Also, the number seven almost always symbolizes completeness in Revelation. So it's likely symbolizing more than just Rome here. Others view these kings as historic empires uh, that, that opposed God's people. And they might pull from passages like Daniel 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, right? Greece, Rome, and so on. They go to counting. And I appreciate this more, because, especially as, as it sees the beast manifesting his rule in numerous empires across time. But you kind of encounter the same problem that you encounter with, with which kings to count. Which empires do you count? Do you also include Egypt? What about Tyre and Assyria? So it's hard to say. A third approach brings us a little closer to the mark, I think. Uh, the seven kings symbolize the beast rule across history. As we know from Daniel 7, this beast already has a long history, right? He manifests his reign in numerous empires across time. But, but what John does here is he kind of he summarizes all of his reign in terms of a 5-1-1 scheme. Okay. He, in other words, he's, he's not just saying, okay, there were literally five that fell, and then only one is currently reigning, and, and there's a one that's currently coming. He's, he's just kind of summarizing all of the beast rule in a 5-1-1 scheme, and by doing this, what we learn is that most of his history is over. Okay? John isn't concerned about numbering specific kings and kingdoms as he is about recognizing how little time the beast has left. So it's, a, it's his way of saying, we're, we're living in his final days. John was writing during the six, and all that's left is the seventh climactic act. Now, there is also this other bit about an eighth in verse 11. It's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And I think what we should see there is that that doesn't mean there's an eighth. It's like there's a seven, and then there's an eighth one in addition to that. The eighth is of the seven, okay? In the sense that he stands behind all seven, and yet he manifests the fullness of his power in the seven. Okay, so across history, you have the beast, who's kind of the transcendent one overall, but he's but he's, uh, he's manifesting his rule 
through the seven heads. And the seventh rule is this eighth king final manifestation. Okay, it's his climactic assault. Uh, so you could say, you know, like John puts it elsewhere in his gospel, that the spirit of Antichrist is already here, right, and at work. But Antichrist is coming, okay? The climactic assault. So, so the beast's rule is impressive when you, when you look at this. And because of this past, present, and future domination, people marvel at the beast in verse 8. Again, there's that word marvel. They're, they're amazed by him. They worship him. At first glance, one might even mistake him for a Messiah of sorts. After all, he was and is not. That sounds like a death. And then he rises in verse 8. And then he's also the one who is to come. That sounds like Jesus elsewhere in the book of Revelation. But on closer look, on closer look, right? See, this is one of the ways he's deceptive, trying to pretend he's a savior. But on closer look, you know, we're not so duped because he rises, but he rises from a place where devils are chained. The bottomless pit, verse 8 says. Uh, He reigns, but he doesn't reign forever like Jesus. He only gets a little while, verse 10 says. He only gets one hour, verse uh, 12 says. He has a return, but his end is destruction. Verse 8 and 11 says, say, characterize him as the one who goes to destruction. Right? When the seventh act comes, in other words, we need not worry. Look at verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. Now, these could be the kings that we saw last time in chapter 16, the kings from the east who come together and form a coalition uh, against Christ. Um, It's hard to say, but they are representative of of kings who will control, uh, the beast will control. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, that's all they get, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. So the beast is impressive, but the beast cannot stop the king of kings and lord of lords. Right? The beast, the beast and, and all the governments and the political powers that he symbolizes, he's impressive, but he is no savior. The beast is a poser. The lamb is the true savior here, and the lamb will conquer him. And more on that, I'm not getting into it much today because there's going to be more on that in chapter 19 when we get there. For now, let's not forget about Babylon. That's the other Part. So there's two parts to this interpretation. One, he, he just tells us what the beast, the beast's fall. Now he's going to tell us about Babylon's fall. I think what he's doing here is that if the, if the beast she rides is going down, well, she's going down with it, right? Babylon is impressive, but her alliance with evil proves to be self-destructive. 
Babylon is impressive too. Her alliance with evil proved to be self-destructive. Uh, verse 15, we, we talked about how she controls peoples and multitudes and nations. Verse 18, she has dominion over the kings of the earth. And part of that success she owes to her alliance with the beast. Okay, but notice what God causes to happen in verse 16. It says, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, in the Old Testament, you will find several cities that God compares to a prostitute. Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, Nineveh, uh, Jerusalem, even, when it's, when it's rebelling against God. And, and if you go back and you read uh, what's common to all of them is that the lovers, so false gods, false nations, etc., the lovers that they seek out end up hating them in return. Happens every time. They would form these alliances with, with pagan nations and with them, they're false gods, and every time it's self-destructive. The very nations on whom they leaned or depended on become instruments of judgment in God's hands. And that's what we're seeing happen here. Same thing. God puts it into their hearts. He causes them to fulfill his word of judgment against unfaithfulness. What word of judgment? The word of judgment in all of those Old Testament types and patterns. He told us this is what's going to happen if you give yourself to Babylon. And when God gives his word, he always follows through. Right? His word is the word that creates history. It doesn't just predict what's going to happen. It creates it. And that is what is happening here. So God is following on through on his word of judgment by turning evil against itself. It's self-destructive. So that's the vision of chapter 17. Babylon and the beast, they partner against Christ, and their alliance creates a, an impressive run across history. But in the end, they cannot stop the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the end, God's word has already determined their downfall and judgment. So how should that affect us? How should that affect us? Well, one, I think this passage should, should force you to consider to, to whom do you belong? To whom do you belong? You see, in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, the angel says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Those same words appear later in chapter 21, verse 9, only this time a different woman appears. The angel there says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then what does John see next? The holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So we have another woman personifying another city. So Revelation is painting the world as two women who personify two cities. 
And the point is to get you asking, which one do I belong to? Do I belong to the bride of Christ? Or do I belong to the prostitute? Well, how can you tell? Well, what do you love? Do you love God? Or do you love the riches of the world more? Where do you find your comfort? Do you find your comfort in the Lord or in the power structures of the world? What are you trusting to save you? Are you trusting Jesus to save you or things like your wealth, alcohol, the next fad, the next relationship? Are you trusting in your own efforts to change things? Where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance with Jesus, or is it with a particular nation or political leader? If Jesus is not the object of your love, comfort, trust, and allegiance, then Babylon is your city. And when Babylon falls, you will fall with it. Unless you repent and put your faith in Jesus. You see, the good news is that your judgment hasn't come yet. The good news is that even for those who have fooled around with Babylon, your sins may be like scarlet, but God can make them whiter than snow. You may have drunk from Babylon's cup of abomination, and you even feel the uncleanness. But Jesus' blood can make you clean. He is the Lamb who washes away our sins. So I just, if you are, if you're sitting there thinking, I think I'm part of Babylon, I just want to tell you, please leave that foolish prostitute. She's doomed. Please come to Jesus. He is forever beautiful, and he will make you forever beautiful in his presence. Here's another way this vision affects us. Beware of Babylon's subtle appeal. Beware of Babylon's subtle appeal. Have you ever heard someone use the analogy like a fish scarcely knows it's in water. You know, we use that to illustrate a simple point. We're often unaware of our surroundings, especially cultural influences. What's around us becomes normal because that's what we're used to. That's all we've known. And it often takes an outsider to help you see the true state of things. Revelation is like that outsider. Only it's God. God is the one that comes crashing into our world 
and shows us the true state of things. You see, in first century Rome, you had this goddess named Roma. She personified the Roman state. Her image was stamped on coins. Her statues adorned buildings. I think we might have a picture of it uh, on the screen. There we go. Looky there, there's a woman sitting on seven hills. She's uh, got in her hand, her left hand there, so she's reclining, like everything's fine, right? She's got in her left hand there a sword. So she personified the Roman state. She looks strong, virtuous woman wrapped in these battle garments on on some occasions. They would even display her prominently at uh, at the games, right, in the stadium, And so the messaging of Rome's culture was always, Rome is strong. Rome takes care of you. Rome is your peace. Rome is the world's hope. And if you live in that long enough, you begin to believe that's normal. That's what everybody should believe. But here's what Revelation 17 does. It jerks the reader up from that normal to reveal the true state of things in Rome. And from God's perspective, that woman sitting on seven hills is no virtuous woman. She's a prostitute who rides the devil's beast and drinks the blood of saints. That's like someone exposing Lady Liberty as a facade hiding America's idolatry. If you're a Roman citizen, that'll wake you up. And some of the Christians needed that. The Christians at Pergamum and Thyatira, we read about them in chapter 2, were tolerating teachers that said idolatry and sexual immorality was okay. Laodicea was leaning heavily on, on Babylon's riches, so much so that it made them feel superior and without need of Jesus. And God wrote Revelation 17 to wake them up, to say, look what you're flirting with. You think she's strong. She's a prostitute. Revelation does this not just for readers in first century Rome. It does it for every person who picks up this book and reads. Again, Rome is but one manifestation of Babylon, and we are just as vulnerable Think of all the parallels between Babylon and our own present American context. Characterized by unfaithfulness of all sorts. An economic powerhouse on which many nations depend. Our military and political power is impressive. You know, we often poke fun at these Regimes for parading their military equipment down the street. But who's beating their chest when the jets fly over at the the football games after the national anthem? Look, I know there's reason for defense. 
And I'm grateful for the men and women who fought for our country and our freedom. What I'm saying is that there's this, this kind of passage, this kind of vision gives our spirit a little bit of a check, doesn't it? Because our spirit, the spirit of a Christian, should be longing for the day when swords are beat into plowshares. But instead, we're beating our chests over superior instruments of war after singing about our country. We look like royalty, but when you get inside, there's a worship of self-autonomy, a love for luxurious living, and a culture that normalizes abomination. You see, Babylon is here. The question is, can you see her? Can you discern her ways? You're not just kind of caught up in it all. Let this vision shape how you see the world. That's why John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Isn't it interesting that Revelation presents the world as two women? Just like the book of Proverbs presents, presents wisdom this way. You've got Dame Folly and Lady Wisdom, and, and Dame Folly is also a prostitute. And her road leads to destruction. Lady wisdom leads to life. Revelation is doing likewise here. If you, if you embrace the way that it views the world, then you will be wise. You will discern the foolishness of Babylon. You won't fall for her outward appeal. You won't fall for her appearance of power. Your eye will be trained to see behind the facade to what she really is. So read Revelation as a whole and, and, and soak in it and let it start, you know, like glasses. You put them on, it's like, whoo, I can see all kinds of things clearly now, right? They will stand out. And then finally, give thanks that Babylon and the beast will fall. Give thanks that Babylon and the beast will fall. Part of God's plan in renewing all things is ridding the world of all that destroys it. I didn't say anything about it earlier, but did you notice the line in verse 14 it says, when it says, they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Those with Him. right? If you're with Jesus, if you belong to Him and follow Him, He will fight for you and bring you justice. Notice they're not doing the fighting. He is. He will not allow Babylon and the beast to get away with their evil. He has ordained a day for their final downfall. The world is not spinning out of control. Everything is under God's control. And he will see to it that his word is fulfilled. He's already determined the end. You're reading it. When you see an onslaught of evil in our culture, when you see the current president calling good evil and evil good, when you see the 
the wars and the political upheaval, when you see the injustice to those more vulnerable, when you see the, the governments right trying to squelch the gospel and threaten Christians, when you see humans that are exploited for money, it's sometimes easy to kind of get lost in it all, especially when it's just fed to you with every buzz on your phone. You start feeling like change will never come and that things are always going to be this way. But one of my favorite things to tell people is that because of God's goodness and sovereignty, things will not always be this way. Right? Part of the good news is that Jesus will eradicate all evil. The powerful, the rich, the political leaders, the superpower countries like U.S., China, Russia, Germany, none of them determine the future. God's word determines the future. And his word will see to it that all evil is destroyed. So every time you start feeling despair about the world, remember Babylon's judgment and give thanks that things won't always be this way. There's another city coming, New Jerusalem, and it will replace Babylon, and it will fill the earth with healing, life, and peace in God's presence. Let's come to the table now and eat in anticipation of that day. Father, we're thankful for Jesus, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules above all. Give us hope in days ahead, and also give us discernment to see Babylon for who she is and turn our hearts away from her. Protect us from being deceived and lured in by her traps. In Christ we pray, amen.